Hi, welcome to Managing Well. I'm excited to share this episode with you. I had an incredible conversation with Dr. Natalie Nixon. We were talking about creativity and humanity at work. Um, sometimes when we're focused on work, we're just go, 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 go. And we forget to bring in wonder what she talks about and rigor and discipline and creativity um, and really kind of the joy that comes when we're able to, to get into the flow um, of work from a creative place and a place that reminds us of who we are as, as human beings. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Hi, welcome to Managing Well. I'm so excited to be in conversation today with creativity strategist, Dr. Natalie Nixon. Natalie is the creativity whisperer for the C-suite. She's a highly sought after speaker, valued for her accessible expertise on creativity, the future of work and innovation. Her experience living in five countries combined with her background in anthropology, fashion, academia, and dance distinguish her as a one-of-a-kind creativity expert. Natalie, welcome to Managing Well. I'm so excited to, to speak with you today. Hi, Tanya. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited for our conversation. Me too. You know, so Managing Well is really a, a, a podcast to really help people managers be better people managers, right? And to be able to kind of understand the humanity of work and the humanness of, of the people who they work with and how do you tend to their well-being and productivity, right? And so as a creativity strategist, can you just explain what, what does that mean? I advise leaders and organizations on new ways to think about their futures and new ways to reframe that. And I do that through the lenses of creativity and foresight. And I'm happy to hear you lead with the human element of the work that you do because it's it's central to the work that I do as well. I often remind people that the word organization uh, embedded in that word is organism and our organizations are made up of humans and therefore they are imperfect, they're inconsistent and they're fallible. And when we tend to design our organizations only with references to Gantt charts and nice linear lockstep processes, we sometimes will set our, our, not all the time, but we will sometimes set ourselves up for some disappointment. And the, the relevance of creativity is that it is the engine for innovation. And as everyone is, is trying to innovate for understandable reasons, if we don't build the creative capacity of ourselves as people individually, but also the creative capacity of our organizations, we actually will not be able to sustainably and consistently innovate. So my my contribution to, to this work is to help people understand that creativity is a productivity play, it's a well-being play, and it's essential for innovation in the future of work. Okay. So I'm you got me more excited. <laughs> you know, so often I think when people hear the word creativity, they think of artists and dancers and musicians. And so you're talking about creativity at, at work being a core component of innovation and, and productivity. Um, and so, so say more about that, because I know, you know, you've worked with um, Fortune 500 companies, like you've worked with lots of different types of organizations that are not in what we might consider creativity spaces. So say say more about how creativity and productivity are connected. Well, 
What I mean by that is creativity is not siloed only among art and artists. Mm -hmm. It's not only about picking up a paintbrush or entering the dance studio or getting onto the stage. It, creativity, as I define it, is our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems, generate novel value, and produce meaning and purpose. And if you begin to think about creativity in that way as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems, then you realize that the best accountants and lawyers and plumbers and farmers and artists are super creative when they're doing this toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And wonder is about deep curiosity mm. and audacity and blue sky, ginormous blue sky thinking. It's about awe and it requires us to pause because you can't, well, it's really hard to wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour. <laughs> so you have to pause. Uh, <laughs> rigor is the dimension of creativity that we typically forsake. Mm. Rigor is about focus and discipline and time on task and skill mastery. And if you have any sort of artistic practice in your life or in your past, then you, you, you totally get that. For me, it's been dance. So before you're invited to audition, to leap across the stage, you spend weeks, months, years in very doing very, you know, rigor is not, is, rigor is not very sexy. It's very solitary. And it takes a ton of skill mastery. You need to know the rules so that you can extend them and rebound and get them. So that those 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 are the dimensions of creativity that I like to help people understand. And when I go into organizations and and share with them that framework of creativity, a light bulb goes off for mm. people. They realize that they they absolutely do have ways to access or they need to design more ways to access wonder and rigor because a lot of the organizations with which I work, they think that they're rigorous. Sometimes they're a bit rigid and that's different. And we can talk about that. Um, so that that's that's what I mean when I talk about creativity. And then it, the link to innovation is that an innovation is an invention converted mm -hmm. into global value. And that value can be financial value, cultural value, social value. But the way you go from that one-off conceptual invention to a scalable innovation, the conversion factor is creativity. And that's why we need to build that creative capacity. And so you're talking about doing this, the way I'm hearing you talk about it is as individuals and as organizations, right? Yes. And so I'm curious if you could kind of give examples for both. Like, so what would the organizational structure of like building and creativity using your definition of the, 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 the relationship and toggling between wonder and rigor, how would an organization like build that into their way of being? Great. So um, I knew that it wasn't enough for me to say, okay, guys, toggle between wonder and rigor and off you go, you're creative. How do you consistently activate that? And so I developed the three I creativity framework. So it's through the three eyes that organizations and individuals, because this is inside out work. And we're actually living in a time where increasingly the boundaries are blurred between work and play, play and learning, learning and 
and and work. We see that, you know, you and I are in our home offices. Well, I don't know if you are, I'm in my home office. And and so like we have increasingly through getting through the COVID pandemic, uh, we have hacked new ways of working, which means that we have insight into our personal lives. And from my perspective, the most desirable companies to work in will be the ones that understand that they that this is inside out work, that they need to be more curious about people's personal lives and demands and encourage people to bring that dimension of themselves to the work uh, because that actually is the reality now, like physically it is the reality. And actually in terms of getting greater productivity, people will be will feel seen and heard when when um, leadership is more curious about that. So anyway, the three eyes are a way to activate that toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems in the midst of these very blurred boundaries. And those are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. So one example from um, a corporate environment is that Google used to, they stopped doing it, but they did it for quite a while. They used to have something called 20% um, off days. So every fifth day of the week around that, they would allow people to tinker and to burrow down into work that had nothing to do with their P&L responsibilities. That was work that they had, they had, they had parked the question and they, if they had more time, they would have loved to explore that. For they would have loved to collaborate with this person in this other department who they only see at the water cooler. Um, so one of the things that was birthed at Google from their twenty percent time was Gmail. So there are quite a lot of interesting, scalable innovations that can happen when we give people the time and the space to do that more deeply focused work. So whatever, so a lot of the things I encourage companies to do is like, what's your version of 20% time? Maybe maybe to start off, maybe it's only 10% time, but even that small amount, allotment of time where you are not requiring people to do what you say do do what you say, but what they're curious about, you have no idea what can what can grow from that. And on an, so so that's an example of experimentation and improvisation. And really giving, um, I'm sorry, but just giving to uh, um, highlight the the point of giving space to do this, right? Because that's where the that's where the energy happens. That's where the conversation happens. That's where the creativity happens. Yes. And I was even thinking as you're talking about all of this and with the words wonder and rigor and the space to do it, I'm also thinking about the joy that comes, like the joy from like that sparks from like a new idea, yes. like, ooh, and then you're in conversation with somebody about it and they're excited and, and right. the, the, the connection that happens or you finally solve this problem or you create a Gmail, right? Like what, but the joy yes. that comes from the, the the daydreaming, the wonder, and the discipline and attention. Um, and so I just was thinking about like, we spend so much time at work. And so to have, to your point, to have organizations thoughtfully create space where people can be creative, where people can be joyful, and it still is about work, 
I think is is innovative, right? That is a new way of kind of that. You're absolutely right, Tanya. That is an innovation, and sadly, <laughs> it's an innovation to uh, give people that space to give them the time. That space time continuum is very important, mm -hmm. and I love your em emphasis on joy. I think that we need to spend a lot more time on emotion and the the role of emotion in our work there's a contagion that happens when we are energized by our work uh from a heart-centered place emotionally and that actually sparks sparks cognition in a different way last month in march i i was invited to give a talk at south by southwest and there's a new talk for me and i talked about creativity and well-being, creativity and wellness. And I was focused on something I call gut up work. Mm. Uh, so I talked about how in the past, well, since the industrial revolution, we've really been emphasizing, aside from people who were only relegated to work in factories, but as the I'll say as the information age really spiked, um, we really emphasized the role of IQ. So we were invited mm -hmm. to show from the chin up it's only been the past 60 years that this idea of emotional intelligence has come into the popular culture parlance so so eq and and recognizing that leaders who lead with their heart with uh curiosity with empathy are actually going to be much more effective managers and leaders because people feel seen and heard so we start out by inviting people to show up to work from the chin up, then from the heart up. And what I was offering is that this is a time when we actually need to start showing up to work from the gut up to show up to work, leading with our intuition for leaders to share out the ways that their intuition is playing a role in their decision making. And the, the way that um, gut up work happens is through something called interoception. So interoception is, I feel hungry, I mm. feel chilly, I feel mm -hmm. warm, mm -hmm. I need to use the bathroom, um, I feel scared, I feel excited. We actually are sentient beings who then feel, and then we think, yes. and then we act. Yes. So when Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, he was, that was, was part backwards. of the story. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, so leading with the gut, the intuition, that's all harnessed through the vagus nerve, the longest cranial nerve that goes from our brain down through our heart into our gut. We actually are wired to, when we say, my gut is telling me, it literally is. It really <laughs> is. Like, like your body really is. Yes. Yeah. And you know, I just want to say, so I love that. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Now, I just love that you brought up the, the, the element of joy and emotion because it, it, it will increasingly matter in the midst of ubiquitous technology. And and I think I appreciate you bringing in kind of the historical um, perspective because, you know, I think what has happened so much is one way of thinking and one way of doing business and work has been valued so much. Um, and so what you're talking about has been valued by lots of communities for a long, long time, right? But have yeah. the communities that haven't kind of had the the um, the power, the attention, 
um, brought to them. And so I appreciate you kind of bringing that in and saying like, no, there are a lot of ways to be productive and integrated, right? Um, that is becoming new to some people um, and is mm -hmm. I think, really important to, to highlight. So I know you, you were talking about innovation, intuition, right? Your three and um, inqu inquiry, intuition, and improvisation. Inquiry is oh, curiosity. Okay, okay. Because those are the, the three eyes for what organizations need to do to bring- To activate people's ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. Okay, okay. And then I, I'm saying, maybe we're saying together that that also brings joy. <laughs> It does. It totally does. And people are dying a slow death at work. They say more. You know, I know you, I know you see this in your work. They don't feel fulfilled. They are not feeling that their potential is being tapped. Mm -hmm. And we have as a result, not only because of that, but we have unprecedented amounts of burnout yes. and apathy and yes. disaffection and, and not feeling connected to the work. Yes. And depression and anxiety and loneliness. Um, yeah. Yes. All of that, which, you know, impacts individuals, obviously, um, and their mental and well-being. But then also for companies and organizations, it impacts your bottom line because people who are depressed, does. anxious are not as productive. <laughs> That's right. There's a business case for this. It impacts your bottom line. And it also leads to people leaving the organization, which is all about knowledge transfer. And that's very expensive. Yeah. Super the high cost. And to, to be able to recruit a new group of people or a new individual who understands the work culture environment, your client base how to get things done efficiently takes, doesn't does not happen in, in a year. <laughs> it, it takes time. Mm -hmm. Yes, you're absolutely right. Which is time and money. And it also impacts the culture, right? When people keep coming and leaving and coming and leaving, it's hard to have a solid culture that can really gel and really buy into um, the idea of taking time and making time and um, making mistakes in that time, right? I yes. think creativity is not perfection. It's, I, it's I think not. I'm saying it's chaos, right? Well, I say that it is a chaotic system. Say so, that, say more, please. So a chaotic is a word that Dehock made up. Dehock was the first president of Visa, the credit card company. And when he was assigned to lead at the time of very big experiment, this hmm. idea that there would be this organization, this service based on the virtual exchange of currency. No one mm -hmm. had really mm -hmm. done a lot of that yet. He took a walk in the woods and he was pondering, how am I gonna lead this big experiment? And he thought, what if this could be an organization that mirrored the ways nature works, where there's some chaos and there's some order. And chaos is not anarchy. Chaos is randomness mm. and order is not control. Order is structure. Mm. 
Mm. And you see that if you take a walk through the woods, you see that there's an order in the way that a grove of trees grows, but there's chaos and randomness in the individuality in each tree. The ways that our bodies heal is another example of a chaos. So, so Dehock did a mashup of the two words. He said, I think we need to design work, our organizations, it looks more like a chaos. Mm. And since then, there's been a whole group body of scholarship that has emerged that has tagged this, this phrase, chaotic systems thinking. So a lot of my work is rooted in chaotic systems thinking, which is connected to chaos theory and complex complexity thinking, com complex systems thinking and networks. And creativity is a complex chaotic system. Mm. And you can see the influence of that work in the way I define creativity, where um, chaotic or where wonder is a bit more of the chaos dimension and rigor is a bit more of the order dimension. You need both. Uh, if you have too much chaos or too much wonder, uh, you're a bit too esoteric and your head is in clouds too much. If you have too much uh, rigor or order, um, you get a bit myopic. So, you, so the rigor helps you to be anchored mm -hmm. and the wonder helps you to be expansive in the way you're thinking about things and if I if I were to make a big generalization most organizations are leaning more on the side of rigor mm -hmm. although sometimes more rigidity not enough wonder not enough wonder at all so you because you mentioned this twice now um not to confuse rigor with rigidity and that you're seeing, you know, organizations kind of lean in that way. Can you, I think, explain more what you mean by that and maybe even give an example of like rigidity versus rigor? Yeah, so so I've already shared, you know, rigor is about focus and discipline and time and task. It's it's what Cal Newport, uh, his work, a lot, of, a lot of Cal Newport's work, he's a, he does a lot of, of research and writing about productivity. Mm. It's what he would call deep thought deep thinking mm -hmm. um, and to do deep thinking you need quiet you need time <laughs> uh you need that however you design your the space around you to be focused rigidity is um so here's the metaphor i'll give um so we live in philadelphia in the commonwealth of pennsylvania where we have this mythology that the groundhog comes out February-ish and it peaks its head up from the ground. If it does, it gives us a sense of how many more weeks of winter we have or if, is spring coming. And so um, in rigorous environments, rigor is like that groundhog. You're adaptive. You mm -hmm. peak your head up, you understand what's going on and you pivot and you shift if you need to. Rigor decides to go full stream ahead, even though all alarm bells are going off and red flags are going up and you're saving face and you're saying, nope, we said we were going to do this and so we're going to keep doing this. So that's rigidity. Rigidity doesn't bend. Rigidity is not adaptive. Mm -hmm. And that's when we get into some some trouble. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> we need to be a bit more rigorous, not, not rigid. You know, I'm curious um, if you have... Um, I know you have thoughts um, about how, like, how could people managers implement 
um, or massage rigor, not rigidity, but massage rigor and wonder into their team. So maybe the organization hasn't bought into this way of being, but there's a manager out there who's like, yes, this is exactly what I want to do with my team. Um, how, how could they do that? They have to first model it. And one way that I have advised companies to do this is to tiptoe into offering um, that space and time once a month. So one way to do this is to, is to say that once a month, one Wednesday morning a month, no one's on email, no one is responding to clients, you are doing whatever for you is the time you need for that deep focused work. That's one example. Mm -hmm. Another example is in my book, The Creativity Leap, I interviewed a company where this is before the pandemic, they were doing a work uh, model where they were three days in the office and two days out of the office. And the person I interviewed was sharing, this was a company called ArcWeb. They were sharing that the days that they worked from home, they were able to do that deep dive focused work. It wasn't about getting on the phone with people. And they actually were much more efficient and respectful about the ways that they would call people in to have a collaborative conversation. It was less reactionary oh. and much more proactive because they had the time and the space to do a deeper dive. Maybe they wanted to read some interesting articles that would buttress the ideas that they were having. Maybe they wanted to attend a webinar. Maybe they needed to just be able to go for an hour long walk instead of a 10 minute walk during the day so that they could do what I now call invisible work. The work yes. that the activities that we need to do that spark different neurosynapses that help us to show back up on the Zoom call at the whiteboard um, with much more generative ideas. So those are a couple of examples of how you can design and give people the space for that rigor because it 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 doesn't it's it the what I what I am getting at when I talk about invisible work which is going to be the topic of my next book, is really about a new way of managing. It's about macro management, not micromanagement. It's about new metrics for productivity. So the way we've been measuring productivity for many, many years has been based on output of widgets, has been time on task. But what happens when now we have technology that can do the output of widgets. What happens when we have technology that can do some basic tasks? Mm -hmm. There will be casualties in mm -hmm. the ways that we work that will be job loss. And the opportunity is to make more room for what makes us uniquely human and the ways that we can be more creative and productive in our human dimension. Um, and so that's where the invisible work and stepping away from the laptop and doing things, models more like what ArcWeb was doing pre-pandemic would be super healthy for a lot of companies. So, you know, I'm thinking of two things kind of come to mind, but, you know, as you're talking about technology and, and AI and um, to your point, like there will be casualties, like things, things are changing at an exponential rate. And so it's almost like we need to dive deeper into our humanity and our humanness, right? That that is what's going to, um, not just help us survive 
but like truly thrive and truly innovate and truly grow and expand and make organizations and kind of life better by diving into our humanity, not just the task oriented, like, let me check this box, let me produce this outcome, but the process of how am I getting there, right? Yeah. What I think is also interesting in this phase of AI, I wrote an article in Fast Company called The AI We Didn't See Coming, Artificial Imagination. Mm. And one of the things I point out in the article is that this is kind of part two of this ubiquitous text. So part one was um, uh, IoT, the internet of things and, and the interconnectivity of everything. And in that phase of AI, what was at threat were was much more manual labor and factory workers mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and their value being replaced by robotics. Um, what's being threatened now are is white collar work and uh, intellectual work mm -hmm. and um, workers who have to use their 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 brains and their minds because we now have AI platforms like chat gpt which can you know generate a lot of 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 content that we typically leaned on our, our brains to do and what i share in the article or i end by by sharing some ways to reframe that instead of being terrified of that to understand that something like we just look at chat gpt it's a collaborator it actually helps to up your game and your ability to think critically and it ups your game and your ethics because um, you still need to confirm or deny yes. the sources. You yes. still need to understand that 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 AI tool is limited because, for example, I think the most recent version only goes back to like 2021 in terms of, of the of the data mm -hmm. it's from mm -hmm. the internet. Also, not every single person in this world is on the internet. So it's actually not a complete data set of all humans on this earth. So there, so anyway, there, there's still so many opportunities. Once we, once we take a breath and we uh, are not terrified and not leading with fear, but are trying to understand what are the ways that this can be an asset and how can, can I actually, uh, I and my boss and the company I work for, really figure out how to amplify what makes us uniquely human that right now AI still can't do. We, we only have probably tapped, I mean, according to neuroscientists, we've only tapped into probably like, we only use as humans probably 30% of the capacity of our brain. Our brains are, are incredible organs. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a lot there still in my view to, to be optimized on a human level. I, I appreciate the way you kind of frame talking about AI and um and 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 fear of it and opportunity with it, right? And thinking of it as a tool that when we as humans, when I say are more fully ourselves, like we give ourselves space to think and breathe and be in nature. So it sparks all the thoughts, right? Um, yeah. That, that, that when we are fully ourselves in that way, that then it, AI is a tool that we can use. Um, 
It is, and I think we also have to. Right, and I'm I'm me. I I'm not standing here saying that nothing to worry about here. I, I there, there are think about and there. There, there is, there is, there are concerns, legitimate concerns that we need to have about machine learning and artificial intelligence, and I also think we need to retrospectively remember that I don't know when. Probably I wasn't around, but when the phonograph first came out, people thought, "Oh my God, people stopped going to live music performances." That didn't happen. People <laughs> played, recorded music, and were able to enjoy it. And people right. still desire and still right. to, to 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 hear live music. When the calculator came out, um, you still need a capacity for mathematical ability and calculations. It's a tool, right? So I think that we just need to to put it in that context as well. Thank you. You know, I'm thinking. Um, you know, I know you're talking about new metrics. Um, to consider not just the output. And so I think one thing I was curious about um, is, is there a way that we can measure joy at work? Like, is there a way? Yes. How, how do we, how do we know so that? I'm smiling well? because there's a very smart gentleman named David Eagleman. He's a neuroscientist. He has incredible TED Talks. And his research question of late, as, as, as I understand it, is what if we could feel data? And so he's developed technology where, and I don't understand it completely, I'm still learning, um, but he's developed apparatus where everything from um, being able to sense and feel uh, data output at factories uh -huh. to he had an experiment where a person who is deaf uh, was actually able to respond to I think it was um, they were able to to type out um, through the vibration that they were sensing type out sentences I'm probably botching that horribly but the point is I love his research question I love he's asking what if we could fill data Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, a, there's an interesting um, foray of researchers and scientists who are connecting emotion and technology. When I did work that was much more steeped in design thinking, strategic design, um, I attended one year an incredible conference. I attended two years. Um, it was called the Design and Emotion Society. Mm -hmm. That it was some of the most diverse. It was the most diverse convening I'd ever mm. attended. There were anthropologists, cognitive scientists, marketers, artists, um, engineers, all sorts of people who were interested in how do we design emotion in our signage, in user interface platforms, mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. branding, and it was, it was incredible. So, so this this dimension of our emotion, of our intuition is increasingly getting some 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 airplay. I like the um it just reminds me again of kind of thinking beyond what we know to think, right? So like you don't just measure metrics kind of as we always have to your point, right? There's new ways of considering it, thinking about it, designing it. Um and you use the word I, I think emotion again. And so I was thinking, you know, 
a lot of companies have, you know, employee satisfaction surveys, client satisfaction surveys. Um, and so I wonder what it would be like if there was a level of measuring emotion, right? So like satisfaction, I think of grade school, like satisfactory is like a C. <laughs> like yeah, I want people yes. to be more than satisfied. Like, you know, yes. are you feeling joyful? Are you feeling energized? Are you feeling fulfilled? Not a hundred percent all of the time, right? Um, but like do, right. are the projects you're working on like generally giving you that um that energy yeah. or not, right? Because then maybe and there'll be times where you're gonna be on projects where you're feeling drained and it still has to get done. That's part of the the rigor, right? But kind of maybe considering those emotions as, as data points to like how it's influencing the work and then adjusting as necessary. So making sure that we're on prod, we have a balance of projects, right. Um, that are, that bring us joy and pleasure and energy and also challenge us. Um, and we're not always kind of feeling down and anxious and scared and depressed, um, about the work we're doing. But we don't even ask about that. Right. We don't even ask about right. the negative uh, emotions, which is equally relevant and important. And that's what I'm talking about when I, um, there's there's a slide that I share in one of my keynotes about uh, KPI, different KPIs, mm -hmm. key performance indicators. And I talk about exactly that and how if we shift it to um, being curious about those emotional dimensions, intuitive dimensions. What if we integrated play a lot yes. more? You know, those are all the things that I'm interested in to understand how to spark creativity, which by the way, are all dimensions of executive leadership, right? So all of the, all of the attributes that you need for, for great play, being able to negotiate, to collaborate, to be able to actively listen, to be curious and reframe a question. Mm. Uh, these are all things you need at play and you also need them for incredible leadership so it's not just about having a ping pong table or a dart a dart board on the wall it's really about being more playful integrating play into the way that that we work into the ways that we work those kpis of the integrating motion and intuition are super important very important, important to like us as humans. And I, and to your point, like to successful people at work, right? Like that's what drives yes. the working relationships and projects forward. You know, when you mentioned yes. the ping pong tables, I was thinking um, how pre-pandemic and, you know, way, you know, years ago, I think there were a lot of companies in the attempt to bring play to work did things such as that, right? They they created spaces where people could could play. And I think, you know, now living through the pandemic, there's been such a shift to hybrid or remote work. People need space more than some structured play, right? So right. like now that I'm home, like you said, you could take a walk for an hour as opposed to 10 minutes um, is the same break that I think companies might have been trying to do years ago maybe focusing on like the physical play more than the mental creative yes. play that you are really talking about. Which also requires macro management. It, it requires a different management style where you have to, which, which means trust is at the foundation of macro management where you don't need to be breathing down a person's shoulder, knowing exactly where they are at every single moment. It's much more, 
process oriented, less outputs only oriented. And that is not easy to do. I mean, that's not the way I don't have an MBA, but you know, I did create a strategic design MBA when I was a professor. And a lot of what we were trying to do was to creatively disrupt graduate business education. Mm. And you know, graduate business education tries to uh, educate for, you know, catastrophe and all the, the dynamics of, of that are going to come your way in leading an organization in a turbulent marketplace. Um, but I think it still forgets that the organizations are made up of humans, humans. because they're organizations. And right. um, yeah, so so play, space, time, trust, um, it's, a, it's a new learning curve for, for, for all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, one of my favorite managers ever um, was somebody who popped his head in my office and said, what are you doing? Are you free? And I said, yes. He's like, Come on, Ben Affleck and J-Lo are shooting a movie around the corner. Let's go watch them. And so that's what we did oh. for like an hour. And just, and, it, and it, to your point, like, you know, he trusted that I was handling my work and he, he, there was something fun. Like, let's go do it. And it was exactly, oh, I right? love that example. That's and awesome. It was, and I will never forget like, oh, like work can be fun. And it's these like yes. seemingly micro moments that was so many years ago that leaves a lasting impression. Um, uh, and then you go back and you're energized and you're ready to work. You're energized for the work. That's, yeah. that's exactly right. That's exactly yes. right. Natalie, this has been such a, a rich, wonderful conversation. And um, I just wanted to see, you know, before we go, if there were any, any lasting gems that you wanted to share with us, especially as you think of, you know, people managers who might be listening, who, who are really curious um about what you're saying and wanting to want to put some pieces in practice for themselves and their team I don't think so I I think just just for people to marinate on these ideas of wonder and rigor and the three eyes I share a lot of content on my website figure eight thinking so they want to join the sign up for the ever wonder newsletter they'll get regular actionable recommendations about how how to do okay. this in their own personal life and in their work i share um recommended readings and listenings mm. uh, through the newsletter and lots of resources to download on figureeightthinking.com as well so i just encourage people to check out the work please please follow me on linkedin and, and instagram and um i thank you for you know the opportunity to have this conversation and share ideas so thanks oh. this was fun you are welcome. And we will make sure we also um, put links into our show notes so people have access to that. Thank you so much for your time and um, wisdom and energy. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Managing Well. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about today's episode, go to thelodipogroup.com slash podcast for a worksheet on today's episode. A special thanks to my podcast team and the Ladipo Group who supports this show. Managing Well is produced and edited by Black Faves Brand Studio. I'm your host, Tanya Ladipo. If you have any questions or topics you want to discuss, email me at managingwellpodcast at thelodipogroup.com.